Welcome back to the World on Drugs podcast with me, Steve Fury. You heard me. You love me. You probably never seen me live. We got another banger, folks. We got the Zoo Man Clan. But Steve, I don't know what the Zoo Man Clan is. Steve, please, please explain to me what the Zoo Man Clan It's a Serbian mafia. It's the motherfucking Serbian mafia. We're throwing bad words out early. Baby. Um, once again, you know, I've been saying this. Some people begin mad. No offense to these groups that we're doing these on, okay? I just look on the internet. I have some people, some sleuths. And then I write these things, and I make them. Uh, or someone else kind of helps me write them. All right, this one I kind of did on my own. Um, did it a long time ago. This is kind of the ones where I realized I didn't want to do this all by myself. Why? Because I don't like school. I don't like to write this type of way, so I get people to help me. Um... All right, let's jump into it. A little synopsis for that ass. The Serbian Mafia has its origins in the arrival of increasing numbers of Yugoslavian immigrants to Western Europe in the 1970s and the 1980s. Operating in Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and France, groups of Serbian expatriates engaged in a pattern of robberies and thefts. Much of this was supported by the Communist Yugoslavian Intelligence Service, who employed gangsters overseas as informants and assassins in exchange would provide them with firearms and legal protection. I kind of slurred on that one. The combination of Yugoslavian government support and the money earned from brazen heists made Yugoslavian criminals some of the most powerful in Western Europe in the 1980s. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and its allies in Eastern and Southern Europe, many Serbian criminals overseas returned to Yugoslavia, taking advantage of the chaos to embark on new criminal careers. And guess what, folks? They fucking did it, these guys. They're badass. Pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff that they did. Many served in paramilitary and militia organizations created ostensibly to protect ethnic Serbs and government property. But quickly they became known for the criminal activities and the role in the ethnic cleansing of Bosnians, Krauts, and Slovenes from Serb territories. Krauts, I never knew Krauts were Croatians. Did anyone else? Or maybe I'm not pronouncing that right. With the end of the Yugoslavian Wars, these militias became entwined with the criminal clans of Serbia, with both enjoying the support of the former communist intelligence and security forces. These guys, okay, like we've seen over and over again, when a government is shitty and small, it has to get, you know, a military or police force from somewhere. And a lot of times they reach out to the biggest criminal organizations. With the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic, a period of reform was ushered in. In response, the most violent and powerful Serbian crime group, the Zuman clan, partnered with Serbian special forces to assassinate the motherfucking prime minister, dog. I'm talking some JFK shit in order to protect the status and privilege that they are garnered during the bloodshed of the 1990s. So if you like, um, I don't know, sick shit, this might be your episode. Steve, you're coming a little hot, buddy. Coming with a little energy. I don't know, because I'm recording in the back of the tour bus. Remember me? Steve Fury tours with Bert Kreischer, one of the biggest and best comedians in the world, and one of my favorite freaking people. So, as you've seen, this this, this episode is a little bit of a hodgepodge, okay? We're going to break this up into two parts. One, because um, when you're touring with Bert, he kind of wants you there with him all the time, so there's not really enough time to do this. Number two, on the first half, did it with my man, Dave Dubs Williamson, David Dubs, and um, he kind of got too drunk and wasn't able to finish the spot. 
So this one's going to be the one I do with him. The next one we're going to, the next half of the pod we'll put out next week, I'll do with him and on my own. But this is the part, if you didn't skip, if you didn't skip, this is the part you want to know. You want to know, Stevie Boy, Stevie Boy, what has been up with you, man? Um, well, you know, we're about three weeks on the road. I miss my friends. No, let's start that again. I miss my girlfriend. I miss my cat. I miss my friends. I miss the comedy store. I miss the setup show. And I miss Bear City. I miss my bed. But I am blessed to be able to do this, and I would not want to do anything else in the motherfucking world. Except maybe if I could go home for a day and then come back, that'd be kind of cool. All right, let's start. Last time I talked to you guys with my main Shane Torres, my main Shane Torres. Since then, we did our little Florida run. First time in, not first time in Florida. You guys know I went to freaking Fort Myers. But this is my first time experiencing Florida with Florida men. Davey Dubs is a Florida man. Birdie K is a Florida man. First off, we pull into Tampa. We play the Carol Morsani Hall. Number one, when we go into Tampa, stay at Bert's parents' house. I'm not going to tell you where that is. Why? Because you're some of your weirdos. You try to do weirdo shit, so I'm not going to tell you where that is. But everywhere, I was, I'll say they lived on a private lake. And I can tell you this, that ain't going to. Lake swamp, private swamp. I ain't going to narrow it down, Jack, because there's swamps on the side of the fucking freeways here. Um, so we go to their place. It's fun. It's interesting. I mean, it's a beautiful place, and it's a beautiful lookout. But it's a lot like, you know, when you go to, like, a reptile exhibit at the zoo, and then they got that one that one exhibit where you can kind of poke your head in through a little, like, half circle, and you're like, hey, I'm in the exhibit. That's what, that's what all of Florida is, because people are like, hey, look, I have a backyard, but it's caged in, and there's guns. Their place was beautiful. His parents were f- freaking amazing. It was a really great time. Um, let's go to the Carol Morsani Hall, Tampa, Florida. We had two days of shows. This place was gorgeous. I'm with the man, the legend, Bertie K, and he returns home. He's from Tampa Bay, Florida. What I would say about the venue, other than it being beautiful, uh, trash. Trash. Number one, let's start with the front, the front of the house, right? Not backstage, okay? Um, you can drink on the outside before you get into the room. Everyone's kind of pretty much maskless drinking. Then once you get into the theater, you have to wear a mask and you can't drink inside. Listen, you guys know me. You know Stevie Boy. I'm about as liberal as they come. But sometimes you just got to stop being stupid. If you can fucking drink 20 feet away and without a mask and hang out with people, why can't you do it during the fucking show? Okay, so as you can see why that rule would be so stupid, that's going to start That's gonna start affecting us in the back of the house in a second. Okay, so the problem is, you're like, Steve, boy, why do you even care? Okay, why do you even care about the rules? Because this is what happens, right? As an opener, me and Dave, the re- Dave is the concierge, okay? He's the guy who's got Bert's ear. Dave can do whatever he wants, but he's been nice enough to allow us to switch. So one day I'll open, he'll go second. One day he'll open, I'll go second. And when you're on a theater show, first guy, half his set place is about 60% set, you know, because one, people are still trying to get popcorn and soda and drinks, and that's fine. But when you did it at this Tampa Bay place, 
I would say 20% are sat. And this is like a two, 3,000 seat room. So you're just kind of just not fun. And you know, you know, this job's fucking awesome. It doesn't need to always be fun. But I can still complain because that's what I like to do. So that happened. So the first two opening acts on that one was two days, four shows. Weren't my favorite in the world. Okay. Now the back of the house. This man, this there's some weasel fuck in the back who kept telling us to have our masks on. Keep in mind, keep in mind for me to get backstage, I had to take a COVID test. Okay. So... I sent you a COVID test that said I don't have COVID. I sent you my vaccination card that says I don't have vaccinations. Everyone I'm hung- hanging out with around me did the same thing. Why the fuck do I have to have a mask on? Am I dumb? Do I understand this? No. At some point, common sense has to come in back into the world. But we got to hang out with a guy named Mike Calter if you're from Tampa Bay. That guy is the man. I think he has the only surviving radio show that matters in the fucking world. And it was cool, man. It was great. Mike Elton's a really cool guy. Got to see all his guns if you follow me. I mean, it'd be weird if you listen to the podcast and didn't follow me. But um, that was the one where I had all those cool guns. Those are all real. Those are real bad boys. That was a Desert Eagle. Uh, other than that, what it, uh, we went to Buck Stadium. Buck Stadium was was pretty cool. Definitely wasn't as cool as going to Lambeau with Aaron Rodgers, but still pretty cool. Uh, didn't get to see anybody cool, but the stadium was nice. It's very Florida. It's just very Florida. Everything's very Florida down here. You know why? And a lot of people won't believe this. Because it's Florida. Otherwise, though, it's been pretty fun. Weather's been very Florida. Pouring rain, very sunshine, hot. All right, then we went off to Orlando. Beautiful Orlando Studios, the Hard Rock Live. Um, this was interesting, man. This is our first time playing a rock venue, and it's so funny that the vibe, aura, and spirit of a room can be alive. Okay, so last time when we did Tampa, very cunty. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Now I'm gonna keep it in. Whatever. We're kind of the seaworthy. Um, and that kind of vibe permeated the place. I mean, Burt crushed every place, gets a standing ovation. But but Orlando, since it's a rock club, this was one of the most rowdy crowds I've ever performed in front of in my life. And I know what you're thinking. Well, you know, control the You've never controlled two, 3,000 people. Okay. It's not a comedy club where I can point at a guy and say something and then the audience hears him. It's more of you're like a movie and you just got to power through it. So we did that. Orlando, two days in Orlando. We're chilling. We're dancing. We're partying. No, we don't do any of that. We stay separated from everybody. But we get to we get a, be brought up to this place called the John Lennon Room, right? If you keep in mind, this is a hard rock live. Just like the restaurants, there's memorabilia everywhere. Original, pretty fucking dope-ass memorabilia. And we got these hard rock places. The memorabilia has to be worth more than the shitty restaurants. So we go up to this place called the John Lennon Room. Everything's white. It's got his old. Com- it's got his old uh, computer. <laughs> it's got his old piano, and it's got that old white suit he has. The one where he took a picture with him and Yoko. Um, really cool thing that the floor was white, 
But what they do when you got a white floor is they cut it into squares. So that if you spill something, you just take the square out. And I got to say, that's one of the smartest damn things I've ever heard in my damn life. That was cool. We all smoked cigars up there. Cigars. How do I feel about them? Um, I could go without. They kind of just make me sick. Um, the worst was, well, I'll talk about that later. So that was the John Lennon room. Very fun. You know, cigars just kind of make me sick. Then we go to Tallahassee, the Donald L. Tucker Civic Center. Okay, if you don't know Tallahassee, that's Florida State. A couple things about Florida State. Caucasian, very. Um, number two, so they used to have the fighting um, Seminoles. They had this side profile of a Native American man screaming. Apparently people said that was racist, so they changed it to a very sad-looking Native American woman looking over her shoulder. And to me, far more racist and far more weird. Um, but this this was one of the things I will remember for the rest of my life. Okay, so now Bert is from here. Bert, if you ever seen the movie Van Wilder, that was about his life. Okay, he spent seven years at this uh, college and... Walking around, people are loving him. People are, you know, shouting out. Then we get to the show, and it's at the Florida State Arena, um, basketball arena. So some of these are theaters, some of these are arenas. The arena is probably five to seven thousand people in it, and it's where they played like different NCAA tournaments. Um, they've had some pretty good basketball players. Scotty Barnes, some plays from Toronto, was on was on their team. Um, who's the big guy on Orlando? Always busts his knees out. Whatever. He was there. Pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. So, we get there a little bit early. Uh, drive around. I love it. We go around town. We go to all of Bert. Bert's telling us, he's like, oh, in that bush, I used to have sex with this one girl. And he's like, oh, I used to do this there. And then we go and eat these sandwiches uh, called Bagel Bagel. Uh, we did not get the bagels to my... Uh, Displeasure. God knows I love freaking bagels. We got these like cream cheese roast beef sandwiches with mozzarella on them. Um, one of the more intense things I've ever eaten in my life, but everyone else loved them. Um, then we get back. Bert maybe goes to sleep, but he's just constantly working, man. The man's just constantly working. So we get some free time. So we, we pull some pull some old strings. Ding, ding, ding. And we get brought up to the practice facility of Florida State basketball team. And we get a shoot. And it's immaculate, man. It's immaculate, and I remember me, you know, I'm shooting, and I'm like, man, I fucking suck at basketball now. Oh, my God. Not very good. Um, but we shoot around, blah, blah, blah. Show's coming. I can feel the energy. The whole stadium's perking up. It's perking up. People are talking. There's a buzz. I'm going up second. So on these shows, there's a thing called the God of Mike. God Mike is, um, if you're ever at a show and someone talks over the speakers, being like, you guys ready to rock? You guys ready to rock? We'll give it up for blah, 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 blah. So a lot of times if you do it at a comedy club, it's one of the general managers. If you do it at a show, it's normally the guy who's the middle act doing it for the first act. So I somehow lucked out on the show and Dave went up first. I'm getting rid of the God of Mike. Keep in mind, there's five to 7,000 people here. Get ready to go. It won't turn on. We're like, uh, what? It won't turn on. So we go, okay, play some music. The music won't turn on. And Dave walks out there cold, and the place goes crazy. 
Keep in mind, I've never done a five seven thousand seat arena. Green Bay was pretty high up there. It ain't this. It ain't the prodigal son of Burr Kreischer returning. And Dave goes in, pow, 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 crush shitty, crush in city. And I'm sitting in the back. I'm taking videos. I'm feeling the energy. Something I've never felt before. This many people. This many people jacked to be there. And it's my turn to go out. And I go out. And they fucking hate me. They boo. They say, you're fat. Your parents don't love you. You're a bum. No, I go out there and have one of the best sets of my life. Just spiritual. Like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, this is what I'm always supposed to be doing. This is this is when I when I threw my life away for an art form that who knows what it'll be here in seven years, and everyone thought I was a moron. That this is the moment that made it all worth it. You know, if I never go past where I am right now, opening for a top three or four act in the world in comedy, that's cool with me, man. I mean, would I want to be burnt one day? Yeah, sure. But I'm also looking around, and it kind of is a lot of fucking work to be burnt. You know what's not a lot of work? This guy. <laughs> You're looking at him. All I got to do is this podcast that weighs on my back. Um, and I love you guys. This podcast is great. The numbers keep growing, and I appreciate it. But, you know, you're the king. You got to do shit. I don't got to do shit. I show up, do 15 minutes, get off stage. So I'm up there, and I'm crushing. I'm crushing. I'm crushing five to 7,000 people. Steve, what does it feel like? I mean, I'm smiling right now if you're watching on YouTube, whenever I put it out on YouTube. Um, it's it just feels like every it's not or an orgasm thing. It's not anything like that. It's a um, it's a one with yourself and your anxieties and your self loathing and your in your I'm not good enough and your I should have done this and your I should have just had a family and been a state worker in Sacramento. No, it's. So I'm doing the right thing. So then my set ends. I'm getting roarous applause. I check my phone as I'm walking off stage. Hundreds of likes and hundreds of follows. Uh, so when you do giant video uh, venues, you don't bring up Bert. He has a video play. So I get off. And what I witness next is something I will never forget for the rest of my life, okay? I watch him play his video and people are freaking out. And then he gets on stage. And there's four minutes of people cheering, standing, cheering for this man. And I can see he gets he's getting emotional. And listen, he's one of the more emotional people I've ever met in my life. But he's getting emotional. Not in conversation, Bill. But, and they're chanting for him. And they're loving him. And this is before he even gets a set. And this is a man who was a, listen, I wasn't there at school, but if there's a guy who's been there seven years, he's kind of a party boy, probably not the most respected person in the world. He comes back to a place as the prodigal son with open arms, more than open arms. It's like coming home, people are, everyone's got blankets to put over your shoulders and hug and kiss your face. Then he goes and does a set. 
fantastic night could have been done there. But that ain't it. That ain't the fucking night, bro. So, okay, you know, there's some problematic things about Florida State with the Seminoles, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's not good. If they change it, it'd probably be better. But it's Florida. They don't want to give a fuck. So before every game, what they do is they um, they put they, an Indian guy comes out on a horse and he stabs the ground with a big spear. So they give him one of these big spears. At the end of his set, he if you've seen the video on my Instagram, he comes out and he goes in the back and he grabs the spear and he starts chanting. So if you ever hear the oh, 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 oh that's from Florida State, okay? Well, I mean, it's from like Native America, so like a prop on that. So he brings out and he's holding the spear. They shut off the lights. He tells everyone to put on their phone cameras and they do the chop, Florida State chop. Oh, and he's pumping the spear. Oh, I broke. I'm almost crying when I see this. Because it's a man reaching his dreams. And not saying reaching dreams. A man hosts one of the biggest television fucking game shows, blah, 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 blah. But like the feeling that I had going on stage, feeling I'm okay, I'm doing the right thing. But times a billion and a half. A billion and a half. Oh, and I forgot to say this one, right? So I'm jonesing after my set. So if Bert's on stage, I'm not necessarily always watching his spot. Sometimes I'll watch her trying to give him some little notes and stuff, but he's not really a big note guy. If you can trick him to think it's his idea, then he'll use it. So I go, okay, you know, I'm in the stadium. I haven't had a hot dog in months. I go, I'm gonna go get a hot dog. I'm gonna go sit at the top of the stadium, the worst seats. I'm gonna watch his set, right? So I grab the hot dog. I go up there. I'm watching this set. I'm sitting behind a guy and his girlfriend. And the guy is fucking dying. And these are the worst seats you can have. And he don't give a fuck. Okay? He don't give a fuck. He's yelling, Bernie Pie! The machine! There ain't no way anyone can hear him. This man so far, it's like, you know, your mom would whistle. And you'd be like, oh, shit, I gotta run home. Ain't no one hearing it from that. I'm sitting behind this guy, eating this hot dog. Watching him and his girlfriend. This is what makes me emotional and almost gonna cry. Watching him and his girlfriend enjoy this show to a point that Motherfucker, you on a mountain, dog. You can't see shit. Luckily, there's TVs. You can see them TVs. And it's just like, I probably would have been that guy. I liked Bert. I went to watch him. And if someone's like, you could have the worst seat and I'm by a hot dog, or you can have a slightly better seat and no hot dog, I would have been worst seat with the hot dog. I mean, I would have been yelling at someone, but I would have been watching it. And instead... I'm on stage with my idol. And my idol is cooler than I could have ever wanted him to be. You know, I've worked with guys that turn out to be fucking weirdos. Hundreds of those guys. And <laughs> and being up there eating that fucking cold hot dog and watching this dude enjoy himself was one of the most spiritual moments of my life. And then I went downstairs and then Bert did the spear thing. 
So that's Tallahassee. And you can understand why that will be a moment I remember for the rest of my in life. Okay. So the thing that Bird does, a lot of times when we get two or three days off, it doesn't make sense to fly home for two or three days. You know, you'd fly home, you'd be there for a day, you'd fly back, especially from Florida. Doesn't make sense. So he'll a lot of times get beach houses for us. Yeah, dog, on the beach, too. This ain't a beach house two blocks down. It's a, well, like a beach house, Jack. So we get one in Jacksonville or Paul's Los Verdes. I don't know. It's incredible. It's right on the beach, completely private. But I'm watching, and I'm like, no one's swimming. So we go out there, swim. Also, if you've never been on the Florida Ocean, it's warm. It's as warm as if you pissed in a pool. It's un, it's unsettlingly warm. If you're from California, you've only been in the Pacific. It's just freezing cold. So we're all swimming. That's fun. We're cooking. That's having a great time. Bert loves to go at night. I mean, he's a very night guy. Because, you know, he doesn't really drink before shows. So he's going to party hard after it. So one night we go, let's go in the ocean later tonight. Go out there. Little boys night. Are we naked? Probably not. We could be. Some of us might be. Not gay stuff. Just boys being naked. I wasn't naked. Not many people were naked. So we go out in the ocean. We start swimming. We're moving around. We're like, what the fuck's going on? And there's fucking plankton shimmering, dog. When you smack the water, <laughs> it's glowing. Like fireworks everywhere. So we're swimming. We're laughing. Blah, blah, blah. Next day, we go out on paddle boards. And we got the drone up there. And we're doing blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. Promos. Whatever, whatever. And then we look at the video. We look at the video because it's a drone, so it goes high in the air. There's fucking hammerhead sharks everywhere. Yeah, maybe the reason people are in the ocean is because there's hammerhead sharks, and maybe the reason that there's hammerhead sharks is because there's fucking plankton. Because fish eat plankton, sharks eat the fish that eat the plankton. So. Whatever. Tonight we just went to Jacksonville, did the show. It was okay. I, it wasn't my best set, but I did pretty good. Got to bring up a guy. Dave, last but not least. I did an Everly Well thing. So if you guys don't know what Everly it's not a promo for Everly Well, but it's an allergy test uh, that they did like 300 for me. Told me all the stuff I'm not healthy with. <laughs> stuff you shouldn't be eating. Because, you know, my stomach feels fucked up. I got to sh- go to the bathroom multiple times a day. And I'm wondering why. I'm wondering, is it my father's fault? Because he had the same thing, maybe. But then I look at it, and they say I'm pretty much allergic to everything I eat. I'm allergic to wheat, not gluten. I'm allergic to garlic. I mean, that's I, I don't think I've ever eaten anything that didn't have garlic in it. Tuna. I eat tuna all the time. Not, not. So, you guys should check that out. It's pretty interesting. One of my buddies was working on something like that. It just helps you, you know. Help your stomach aches. All right, guys, that was part one of the podcast. Check out the next one coming out next week. Going to love a little bit of Davey Dubs, a little bit of self, uh, self done by myself. Why? Because Dave got too drunk, couldn't finish the podcast. But if, if, if he didn't, that wouldn't be Dave. Guys, I love you. Thank you. Check out next week. Thank you. This is the World on Drugs Podcast, part one with the Zoom and Clan, Serbia's most violent lethal mafia. Bye. Dave, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Appreciate it. Happy to be here, Steve Fury. So, so excited. We got some ribs on. We're in between shows. This one's very... Uh, beef ribs. The beef. biggest slab of beef ribs I've ever bought in my entire life. Really? Yeah, they're gigantic. 
I mean, they're probably the most expensive. <laughs> That's why they're expensive. <laughs> they're gigantic. They were almost probably about $120 Yeah, for a slab of beef ribs. I would say this, though. I've said it before. Your beef ribs are the, my favorite thing I've ever eaten in my life. Thanks, buddy. I can't even begin to tell you how much that means to me. And when I look at a price tag and I say, is it worth dropping some cash on if it's going to make someone's day? And then the answer is yes. Oh, dude, it changed my life. Made my fucking day. Do you want to, uh, you know what I did last time I made beef ribs? I cooked for the Jim Jeffries podcast, actually. Yeah, I saw and that. I was, I was doing very a, jealous. I was doing a, a brisket at the same time I was doing the beef ribs. Mm-hmm. So you have to trim a lot of fat off the, yeah, the brisket. brisket. So I took the fat and I put it in a pan and I put it in the smoker with everything else so slowly over time it rendered into um like a meat tallow so when the beef ribs uh were ready to be wrapped in butcher paper i paint i i I drizzled the fat the the meat tallow on the uh onto the the beef ribs and then i wrapped them with the butcher paper and then when it was over i painted another little layer on so it just Just had tallow all over the beef ribs it was like next level dude it was like Adding fat to fat. It was so good. Yeah. the I remember where I had your beef ribs the first time. I think it was Pennsylvania at that one. Oh, yeah. The really, was, a really good drive-in theater we did. Yeah, that was a cool one. There's like uh, whippet canisters everywhere on the ground. <laughs> it's that kind of a Jack and Diane kind of town. Yeah. Sucking on chili dogs and we're doing a podcast. <laughs> so this one right now, I'm going to tell you all about the Serbian mafia. Essentially, um, we're going to go from the beginning Till the end of pretty much the Zuman clan. There were big guys. You wouldn't understand any of this until I'm going to tell you. It gets a little uh, wordy, so feel free to read along. and um, Or if you're just good at listening. That yeah, I'm just going to soak it in and react. Okay. This, is, this is somewhat uh, fitting because right now we're touring with Bert. And yep. Bert just spent a few months in Serbia. Yep. And we've, so we've been hearing a lot of stories about that. And then I'm a big water polo guy, and water polo is huge in Serbia. And I grew up in Miami, just so some mafia uh, crime crazy mm-hmm. shit always happens in Miami. So I just I feel like I'm I familiar. can. That's why we I got have you a lot on of here. Threads through this. Fantastic. I'm actually working on right now. I have one of my producers. Um, we're working on a history of the Russian mafia to do with Bert next week. Oh, I think that'll be pretty cool. I was smart, gonna, smart. I was going to do this one with him, but whatever. I think it'd be good with you. Um, I'll do the best again. Oh, you're going to do fa- fantastic. So we'll just squish past that one, and we'll go start at. Uh, we'll start with some of the big players, okay? Some of the key people are Dusin Spasohevich. He is the main guy. He started the Zuman clan in Belgrade. He uh, started as a Serbian football player, went mm. to a petty criminal, worked his way up. Maja Lukovic. He's now, the, is that football like soccer or football soccer. like our football? Okay. Soccer. Um, Maja Lukovic, he was a former prison guard, petty criminal. They started the Zuman clan together, kind of like you would be Miles Lukovic and Dusan Sapasotovic would be Burkreischer. Oh, like the right-hand man. Right-handed, yeah, yeah, confidant. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Another guy is this guy, Milorad Legion Ulominek. He is uh, one of the most fucking – he's a war criminal. So what happened, right, is in – a lot of these war-torn countries, when they, especially when uh, Western Germany fell and Germany fell, there were a lot of these paramilitary groups that had nothing to do, and a lot of them joined up with uh, gangs and criminal enterprises. Yeah, it's all they knew. It's all they knew. So then now those guys joined up with these guys, and these gangs now have guys that are fucking war criminals that know how to flay people and get information yeah. and do all this crazy shit. 
Yeah, like they, they they don't need to impart those like really intense skills, but they just yeah. like they just default. It's like if they were working like at a Home Depot and someone asked them a question, they would just start torturing someone for the answer. And it's like, hey man, easy, take it easy. <laughs> well, that's a really it keeps happening in all these countries. You know, when it falls, these people then start taking their military grade intelligence and information and how to and how to train people and how to take over a building and they go to a gang and then they train everybody and then the cycle continues the cycle continues and gets even weirder so we're going to go to the early life of spa sohivich and lukovich two best friends dave and bert sounds like nba players <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, yeah they played on that turkey team with uh, vlade divok and peja stojkovic yeah. good passers July 16th, 1968, Dusan Spasohivic is born in a Serbian village of Retkosher outside of the city of Medvija. You're killing these uh, pronunciations. You know what's crazy, man, is I have to look them all up beforehand. And so I, sometimes I get a little bit uh, confused and forget them. But I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at Yugoslavian, Serbian, and uh, and uh, what's the lot? Polish. But I get kind of fucked up when it goes to Russian. About a year later, on March 1st, 1969, Mil Lukovic is born in a small sa- town outside of Medvija. 1986, Spasohivic and Lukovic complete their secondary education. They're becoming friends. They know each other. They got a fine arts degree. They got a fine arts degree. They're probably beating people up. They're probably the, <laughs> they're probably the kids that sell candy bars in school. 1987, the pair leave their home villages. Spasohivic studies business at the Nikola Tesla Technical School in Medvija, and Lukovic becomes a prison guard in Kosovo. Okay, that's a good job for him. Not bad. You know, it's interesting the way. I really think that the way that their kind of their country devolved and broke down after it kind of like, uh, you know, the government collapsed, that was the kind of thing that sent these guys in different ways. Because really, Spasohivic wanted to be a soccer player, and the other guy was just being a prison guard. You know, everyone's got dreams, man. It's so funny. These little boys wanted to be soccer players or or go do, like, real-world things, and they get sucked into that uh, violent uh, path, and then that's who you are after that, you know? Especially if you just weren't good enough to do what the thing you dreamed you wanted to do, and then someone's like, well, you can do this right now, man. Yeah, you could either make a shit ton of money doing this, or you can be poor chasing your dreams. Oh, man, I'll join a gang right now. (laughs) June 1989, neighboring Hungary begins to dismantle its borders, security with Austria, the Soviet influence in southern Europe rapidly erodes. Summer of 1989, Spasohivic moves to Belgrade after completing his business trade school. In November, uh, border checkpoints between East and West Germany are open. Soviet rule in Central Europe begins to collapse. Ethnic conflict flares across Yugoslavia and communist regime. Also, so this is going to be a lot of information that's kind of boring. There's a little thing right there afterwards. that will be a synopsis that's kind of more like a... a Story of what a synopsis. Discussed. It's a synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a synopsis. It's a synopsis. I got it. Okay. Uh, 1990s, Spaso Hivich immigrates to Germany to play football professionally. I got a small feeling that's not going to work out. March 31st, 1991, Croatia declares independence from Yugoslavia, a very big moment. Sl- Slovenia follows shortly afterwards, followed by Bosnia. War erupts across the region. The reason this is big is because Yugoslavia and all these countries start to do a lot of that old. Uh, that old uh, ethnic cleansing that these oh, that this yeah. area of the world likes to do yeah okay so with all these wars erupting between past allies what's a friendship that you lost and why oh hmm well you know i would say i i could i could pinpoint i i have two friendships that kind of ended this way but one specifically where 
he's like a, it was a dude who was like um, a sociopath, mm-hmm. you know, and it never bothered me. See, a, 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 I don't know if it's a flaw or a strength, but I'm the kind of guy where people who have a hard time making friendships are drawn towards me. I could well, you're also very kind, and you look past people's uh, kind of faults. Yeah, I, yeah, man, it doesn't bother me. Like, it, I, I try to look for the good in everybody. If that makes sense, you know, and and I could see like uh, the value in in knowing someone or being friends with them, even if it's not easy to find. I I don't mind tooting my own horn with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, one guy specifically, but uh, earlier in my life, I think uh, uh, someone who's a sociopath or a bad person, I would have maybe made excuses for them. Later in life, I recognize it's a thing. And and uh, I'm still okay with it as long as you don't use it to take advantage of me. Yeah. But there's one guy I was very kind to him and his family, and he just kept taking advantage of me and taking advantage of me and taking advantage of me. And finally, the point where it was like I was insulted because it felt like he thought I was stupid. Where it's mm. like, man, if you're just like, if you need something and if I can help you, then just be straight up with me, man. But when you're costing me money or costing me time because you're lying to me. That's that's when it burns me, you know. Yeah, it feels like you. Th- I'm helping you because I'm. It's out of the kindness of my heart, not because you think you're tricking me into helping you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like he he always lied about things that didn't matter. So I didn't I didn't fault him for that. I'm like, oh, that's that's what he's got to tell himself or tell me to feel like he's valuable. So never it never bothered me. But I was like, the second you're trying to lie to me because you think that I'm buying it and you're mm-hmm. getting something from me. Now I'm like, I don't need you in my life anymore, yeah. man. I, I need to, I can't, I, my family doesn't have, I don't have enough time or money for my own family. I yeah. can't, I can't put it out there for you. So that that's one, it was one of the first, and, and I'm super burned by that because I don't get upset about mm-hmm. people very often. Cause like I said, I don't mind being a punching bag to make someone else feel good about their life. But it got to the point where it really bothered me, and, and it was one of the first times I felt really burned by somebody, you know? I mean, you're definitely one of the guys that I would say one of the best hangs, one of the worst people to talk shit with. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I will stop you there. If you get enough beers in me, dude, I get super blunt and honest, okay. and you know this. So I do think people like when I talk shit with them because yeah. I don't do it often. It's hard to you're do right. exactly. Means but if you more. get me on the right person or the right tangent, I will go down a rabbit hole for but I probably will always do it with it in a way where I'm like, but I love him. Dude, I love that guy. I love him so much. But <laughs> it's like a joke when yeah. you're like, you but know, he's kind of an asshole <laughs> <laughs> when you build him up to cut him down. Yeah, Exactly. All right. Dusan Spasohevich was born on July 6, 1968, in the village of Retkusher in what was then the oh, socialist beautiful Repo- place. Beautiful. Republic of Yugoslavia. Who doesn't want to go to the great Yugo? water polo team, by the way? I could see it. You know, no idea. Oh, maybe. I wouldn't doubt it. These fucking Eastern European Slavic guys are always a lot bigger and more athletic than we really think. Well, that's why they're so good at water polo, dude, is because over there, water polo is the main sport. So Hungary and Croatia and Serbia, like the LeBron James uh, of those countries that grew up there, they, they all start playing water polo when they're like six years old. Where here, it's like our best athletes go to like 20 other sports and then the ones that are mm-hmm. left kind of find water polo, you know? Well, that's why I always think everyone's other soccer teams are so good. And it's like, yeah, that's the only thing you've got. Yeah. Soccer's like our fifth thing. Like if LeBron James like started playing water polo when he was five, we'd have an awesome yeah. <laughs> national team. Yeah. Also, if you guys don't know, he's a very big water polo, water I, polo coach. I let them and as a water polo uh, 
podcast. The Tony Acevedo podcast with Dave Williamson. Located on Serbia's border with Kosovo, Retkasher is a small town, population of about 100, of ethnic Serbs, where his father was a miner, his mother was a housekeeper. As a boy, he met Mal Lukovic and attended school together throughout the 1980s. Mal Lukovic was born on the 1st of July, 1969, in a small Serbian town of Donji, Gatja, no, Gajtan, outside of Medvij. <laughs> Killing it. Medvij. Medjev. Medjevda. Okay, I'm gonna read Medjevda. Uh, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna yet when I do that, it allows me to go back and edit because I see a huge spike. Uh, outside of Medjeva. After finishing their post secondary education, the friends decided to leave their hometown while Lukovic traveled south to the city of Pristina in Kosovo, where he worked as a prison guard. Spasohivic studied first at a business school and then went north, moving to the Yugoslavian Serb capital of Belgrade in nineteen eighty nine. Dave. Yeah. Who was your best friend out as a kid? And you still know him. Oh, man. Yeah, dude. My oldest friend is Lenny Beers. Lenny. And Love that name. Yeah, man. I'm the only one who calls him Lenny. Everyone calls him Lenny. He's a professional now, so everyone calls him Leonard. But I'm like, you'll always be Lenny to me. Don't Lenny Beers. Yeah. Sounds like a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah. um, but my uh, father, who's technically my stepdad, uh, but oh, I, I consider him my dad. He adopted mm-hmm. me very young, married my mom. Uh, but so when my mom and him started dating, my father was roommates with Lenny's dad. Oh, cool. And Lenny's uh, comes from a split family, too. So uh, so it's funny because Lenny's parents were divorced and my parents were dating. So the, the two dads were bachelors who lived together. So they used to get babysitters for us in, uh, when they'd go out for double dates. And, and then stuff. you guys were hanging out together. Yeah, so we've been friends since we were two years old, man. And uh, he's still my buddy to this day. And he uh, he's my accountant. <laughs> nice. Shout out to Lenny Beers. Yeah, man. If you're in South Florida and need some help, he's actually I, you know I live in California. He takes care of all my like life insurance mm-hmm. and all that and all my account. So he's gotten really good at taking care of comedians' uh, finances. Yeah, yeah. I got so. one buddy right now that was a buddy of mine. He was always valedictorian, and he's an accountant. But I'm too embarrassed. For him to be my accountant, yeah. <laughs> dude, I I feel that, but I didn't care. I'm like Lenny knows, uh, yeah. So, but he, uh, I've hooked him up with a lot of my comedian friends actually, because uh, people are always looking for help, and mm-hmm. I'm like, hey man, Lenny won't judge you. He's taken yeah. take care of my shit for years. In Belgrade, Spasohivic embarked on a football soccer career. Though successful enough to play at the lower leagues, he failed to advance to national teams and turned his career into a profession. Dejected, Spasohivic took advantage of the chaos stemming from the collapse of the Soviet rule in Eastern, Central, and Southern Europe, so he migrated to Germany, a site for many refugees across the Eastern Bloc. Cool. Again, Spasohivic tried to embark on a football career, but by 1993, with his career relegated to local clubs and leagues, he returned empty-handed to Belgrade. Living with his girlfriend, Tanja. Upon his return, Spasohevich soon was married. Upon the birth of his child, he invited Lukovic to be his godfather. Lukovic readily accepted, and following the child's confirmation, he decided to stay in Belgrade with Spasohevic. So this is like two buddies, both went on their own ways, came back over the birth of Spasohevich. Um, Serbia will never be the same again. <laughs> this child's birth and having these guys come back together. He's like Jesus. Yeah. So here's a good one. Who's one of your best friends right now, and how do y'all meet? Oh man! Wow, I, I don't feel, say Bert because we're gonna. I'm gonna got a Bert question later. All right, no, but it it uh, it's hard. It, like I just what goes through my brain is I'm like whoever I say, someone else is gonna uh, be insulted. But I would say um, one of my best friends right now i mean my best friends i mean is it cheesy to say my wife that's no. cheesy right i mean is it cheesy 
Yeah, but you know, I'm gonna have so many more questions about friends. That still works. Yeah, I mean, my wife, I met her in college, and well, she, she went to Auburn too. Yeah, wow, she was cool. one of the first people that I dated that was like, like a friend, not just like a chick. Yep. You know? Yeah. Like, 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 like every chick I dated before that was like, you know, she, they were like a girly girl. So mm-hmm. it was like I was all about it. Uh, you know, just I was attracted to them, but it was like they were like uh, to take to take out somewhere and like wine. My wife, I was like, oh, man, she's fun to like watch Sports Center with yeah. or go to a football game with. And I think she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now we've been together over 20 years. And I mean, when you get to be in your 40s and you're married, and have two kids and uh, it might be equally as cheesy, but my, my boys are old enough. Now. I got two sons, mm-hmm. so they're old enough now to be like more like friends than just kids you know like my oldest son's a freshman on the high school water polo team that i'm an assistant coach on so i get to see him every day and coach him and my youngest son's just super into the barbecue and building shit so it's like i have connection points with both of them so it's kind of cool being at this point in my life where like your family is your friends you know i mean i I got a lot of friends out there um i'm very lucky man one thing in my life no matter what is i've i've always had great friends Mm mm-hmm uh, but Probably because you're a good friend. I'd be a try, man. I definitely try. Um, but high school, college, uh, you know, through any job I've ever had, comedy, I've always had great friends, man. And it's cool that you know, I actually, that, I learned that during the pandemic, man. Uh, I was like, a month or two in, I go, man, I'm so glad I like my family. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I'm not like you, you. get those people who are like, like protesting and certain, they're like rich and they're. I mean, you're in your mansion and you're protesting because. You probably can't stand like just seeing your spouse every day (laughs) or so many people divorced during the pandemic. Yeah, it it definitely accelerated uh, one way or the other. You either realized you really love your family or more importantly, like them because you could love them and tolerate them. But when you got to spend every day, all day with them, you better like them. I would say, you know, what, man, I would say, you know, keep mine corny, too. I finally have a girl that I always that feels like it doesn't feel like. You know, honestly, every woman I ever d- dated, I always kind of had like a something on the back burner, or I like a, yeah, you know. Right, and I was like, yeah. I was like, this and is you, not going to be it. Food. Yeah, I'm not talking food. Right. I'm like, this isn't going to be. You got a backup I, plan. You I got a plan, backup plan. Oh, got a plan B. No pun intended. Exactly. But now I feel like I'm dating someone who's legitimately on my team. And then my dad, like I, you've heard my joke, I was the best man at three of his weddings, so <laughs> I, I can see that. Uh, He's your best friend, too. So let's push it forward. 1993 to 1995 with the Pekka group in the Serkin clan. So clans in Serbia are gangs. Mafias. Separate mafias. 1993. Spaso Hivic leaves Germany for Belgrade. He marries and has a child. Lukovic joins him in Belgrade, and the two begin a criminal career in auto theft for the Pekka group. In Eastern Europe, in this kind of area right here, auto theft is a huge thing. It's like they steal it and they they can bring it to a different country and resell it or they'll steal it and do it for ransom. 1995, Spasohevic and Lukovic join the Kumet clan, a Serbian crime syndicate in Belgrade. The pair are arrested for auto theft. That doesn't really matter. This <laughs> this Kumen clan, huge. This is going to be something that's going to be for the rest of us. All right, that's big time, huh? Dave, did you ever belong to a fraternity or a group of friends, gang thing, and was there any hazing or anything like that? <laughs> uh... Well, in college, I thought about rushing a fraternity, but I was on the water polo team, and that kind of became Perfect. my fraternity, which was cooler, man, because I feel like when you join a frat, you you tend to gravitate towards a frat that are made up of people that are like you. Yeah. But with water polo, it was like dudes who were 
totally from different parts of the country. Like there were guys I wouldn't have hung out with if we didn't have water polo in okay. common. But because we had water polo in common, we became best friends and we partied together. We were all roommates. And then later in my college career, we even got like houses, kind of like a frat house. We had water polo houses. So it was like, you know, we had six or seven teammates living in a house together. Um, and also, you know, sports teams are better than frats because you don't pay to be on a sports team. <laughs> Uh, you pay with your blood, sweat, you play, and tears. Yeah. And it's almost, and what bonds you together isn't that you paid to be in a group. It's that going through things and having each other's backs. Yeah, man. No, totally, dude. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like humanity in general is based on being part of a community. That's why fraternities mm -hmm. exist. And, you know, comedy's that way, dude. Like, when you do a weekend with somebody, yeah. and, like, there's so many comics out there, you might not bond with someone just because you meet them at the bar and they're yeah. also a comic. But when you happen to be scheduled for a weekend, and, and there's, both. A, there's an MC, a middle, and a, and a headliner, and you guys make it through a successful weekend, you guys are bonded for life. Mm -hmm. Like, you had that one weekend together, and now you are friends. Even if you don't like each other, you still have, like, that thing in common. And know? the worst is when you sometimes, this is a big thing I always found in L.A., when you'd connect with a headliner and then you'd come before I came to L.A. And then I come to L.A. and they'd ask like they didn't know you. <laughs> and you'd be like, bro, we got dinner five nights in a row yeah. till 4 a.m. When you needed me because you were lonely in Sacramento. I was picking you the fuck up. Ain't no goddamn way you don't know who the fuck I am. Bro. I used to always do that, man, because I had a uh, my dad was in the car business. Actually, speaking of auto theft, mm -hmm. I've got some good auto theft stories, actually. Um I, uh, so, you know, my, my dad's business had, uh, tickets to the Miami heat and the dolphins and stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I, I had, I had access to stuff at that mm -hmm. point when I was just starting to MC at all the local improvs. So when I was opening for a headliner who was in town, I'd always be like, Hey man, do you want to go to the dolphins game on Sunday? Or do you want to oh, go to the heat game yeah. on Saturday? So, or if there's a food and wine festival in town, you want me to come pick you up and take you? Cause I know you get lonely sitting in the hotel room. So like, I, I really connected with a lot of guys by just doing stuff like that. And, and, you know, trying to make sure that they weren't sitting on their ass bored. That's a great way to get in with Spasso Hivich's family to sport and having failed in other ventures. They've been bark on careers as petty criminals working for a low level thief, only known as Pekka. They begin by stealing, breaking into cars and then extorting the owners for the return of the cars. As the Eastern Bloc collapse, Yugoslavia begins to unravel with each of the constitute republics breaking away and forming their own nations. Civil war and ethnic violence ensue, and in the overwhelmed Yugoslavia hospitals, they honed a notorious method of, method of theft by stealing the vehicles and possessions of visiting family members and then holding them for ransom. So these guys would go to a hospital, steal someone's car, Invaluables in the hospital because they're visiting their family all weekend and they have all their <laughs> shit in there, and then they'd hold it for ransom. So just like the most awful people of all time, what was one of the worst people you've ever met? <laughs> uh, well, I'll stick to the theme. Okay, um, you can do. If you got a bad so, family member, you no, no, no. The, th the the things you just read, oh, car theft. Yeah. Okay, cool. So my like I said, my family's in the car business, man, down in South Florida, and there were people who I considered family who. Mm -hmm were employees of ours for for years, right? People I had at my dinner at my house for dinner parties and stuff, right? And then you'd find out You can keep talking, I'm gonna check. Yeah. Uh you would find out that uh they they were stealing you or scamming the dealership or something, you know? So there's people that worked for us who I considered family and, you know, in doesn't mean they're bad people but whatever reason they were desperate their back was against the wall they made a bad decision you know start try to do scams uh, and and i you know i'd go to them and i'd be after they got caught and i'd be like hey man this isn't like 
not that it would be okay, but just use the same example I already used, like Home Depot, where it's a nationwide company and you stole a stapler. I go, it's my family, man. Yeah. Like this is like you're like taking money from me, you know. So that that really hurt. But I spent one summer growing up uh, in the dealership. So we had one of the lines of cars we had was Saturns. And one year, people realized that you could take a butter knife or just regular scissors and shove them into the ignition cylinder and then pop all the tumblers uh, by just you crank the, the ignition on just like that. Just with that. So people, gangs and, and, and teenagers and stuff were just stealing, stealing Saturns <laughs> rampantly that summer, just taking them for joy rides, right? So when I was like 14 or 15 years old, one of my summer jobs one year was all the Saturns that came in as um, uh, being recovered from thefts, uh, I would have to take the lock cylinder out and rebuild it and put it back in. And then we would get to go into the trunk and anything that was left by the theft, uh, the, the thief, I could keep because we were supposed to clean it out of the car Ooh. for them. So I, I was 14 or 15 years old and I got brass knuckles, playboys, um, you know, bats. There was like all kinds of Chinese throwing stars, knives. There was all this shit that I was just like, oh, I'm keeping this. <laughs> That's hilarious, dude. That's so funny to have all that stuff. I got some just like that. When I was so I was like uh, at the time, I was still dealing drugs and I was with this girl. and We were going to go into San Francisco for the weekend. Right. So she's got we're bringing if you're from Sacramento, you're going to San Francisco. You kind of bring in all your nicest stuff. Right. So you want to shine bright. So, OK. So we get into there. Like got, the big city. The big city. Exactly. We get in there. I got an ounce of weed in a jar. We get and also she's going to go and we're going to spend the weekend there. She's going to watch me do stand up. It's going to be a big thing for us. We're kind of dating, ready to go in the, in the girlfriend thing. We get there and the first night we're watching a Stevie Nicks cover band open for a Tom Petty cover band in a rock club. Fun time, right? That's a good time. Park, yeah, that's a great time. Yeah, that's a great time. Park the car, go to the show, have an excellent time. We're even kissing in public. So Ooh, I don't like to do it. Yeah. Come back to the, even, to the, with, car. In the even with someone on the back burner. Yeah, there's a couple of people on the back burner at this time. <laughs> we get home or we're walking back to my car and I'm walking back to the car and I see a gentleman looking at my car <laughs> right outside. And I get closer and I realize he's wearing one of my hats. Oh, all right. <laughs> he was still hanging out at the scene of the crime. Yeah, yeah. I get up there and I go, yo, what's going on? And he goes, don't worry about it. There's still stuff in there we can take. And he like, thought you were going to help him steal your, your car? <laughs> I'm freaking out. I kick him. I'm kind of like kicking him out of here. Get out of here. The guy runs away. He smashed our windows, all my windows, stole all of our clothes. Oh, man. All of my weed. And was he a crackhead? What he left was a loaded crack pipe uh, and a full uh, bottle man, of RD-151. That. <laughs> that was the other thing, too, man. When these cars came in, you could tell, like, people, like, there was... Uh, 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 burn marks in this in the roof, you know the felt and everything. Like they people just like partied in there, yep. and uh, we never made it after that because we we're supposed to be out for three days. Yeah. And immediately drove home. You were free falling. Dude, drove home at one thirty in the morning with no windows. It was freezing cold. <laughs> just glass shards. Yeah. To you. no one was talking to anybody. <laughs> so they're holding cars for ransom, and this soon escalates into drug dealing. And Spasojevich supplants Pekka as the leader of this group. Spasojevic gradually earned a reputation in Serbian underworld for his criminal activity, becoming nicknamed the Albanian by Serbian Ooh, criminals. Like that. Yeah, that's a scary one. The for Albanian. His, for his hometown's proximity to the border of Albania and Kosovo. 
Though he and Lukovic are Serbs, they do have connections with the Albanians from their home region. What begins as a small racketeering operation escalates into a regional drug distribution business with Spasohivic and Lukovic purchasing drugs from their Albanian connections and selling them in Belgrade. Both this and their auto theft ring, which now had several employees, bring them the attention of Labisa Buha Kumit, the leader of that thing we talked about, the powerful Kumit gang, Kumit right? clan, yep. as a Serbian, which is essentially the head of the Serbian mafia. Mm. Spasohivic was nicknamed the Albanian, fantastic nickname, even though he wasn't Albanian. What's some nicknames you've had, and how'd you get them? Oh, dude, I had so many nicknames. Um... It's funny, my nicknames are always like uh, adjectives that go before Dave, too. So, like, uh, when I was young, I was really into spearfishing growing up in Miami. Mm -hmm. So, they called me Grouper Dave because I was really good at shooting (laughs) groupers. So, I was Grouper Dave. I was um, uh, U-Turn Dave when I worked for Red Bull after college uh, because I used to always bust U-Turns in the little Red Bull car when we were driving around. (laughs) Uh, I've been, um, Miami Dave, when I moved away from Miami, I just oozed of Miami cause I'd wear wife Peter undershirts and no one had seen that before at Auburn university and gold hoop earrings, which I've brought back for this tour. And I'm wearing right now in my shark tooth necklace, which I brought back for this Florida run on the tour. And I had frosted tips. So people just called me Miami Dave, uh, people who know me from water polo, but aren't in water polo. I call me water polo. It's always an adjective. And now I'm Meet Dave because of the barbecue thing. My podcast is Meet Dave. So everyone calls me Meet Dave. The little kid next door calls me Neighbor Dave. It's always something plus Dave. What's your favorite one you've gotten? I mean, Meet Dave's been pretty fun, to be Meat honest. Dave's pretty good, too. I, liked, I was at the emergency room for my eye uh, the other day uh, at, like, midnight. And the valet, I, I walked outside because I didn't want to wait in the waiting room with all the sick, sick people. And I'm out there just freezing my ass off with a mask on and a blanket around me. And the valet guy comes up to me and goes, meet Dave. <laughs> and I go, who are you? And he's like, I recognize you. He's like, I live in your part of town. I see you smoking out in the front yard all the time. Smoking me. I go, all right, man. That's pretty impressive, actually. So other than Fury, my nickname I've gotten was Scuba. And the reason I got this nickname was because. They're Big used- Daddy, right? Yes, I got it from that, but the way I got it was there used to, when I was selling drugs, there was a gang guys that I would work with. I was more of, they were in a gang, I was kind of like, I described it as they were Earth and I was a moon. I wasn't really in the gang, but I bought stuff from them, and if I ever had a problem... You were gang adjacent. I was gang adjacent, right? And if you're ever in one of these things, you know they give nicknames, so they gave me the nickname Scuba Steve. That was essentially how I got that nickname. I dressed up like Scuba Steve for Halloween one year, and it was so impressive. I made the whole outfit myself. With well, you have to own all that stuff. You go scuba diving all the time. Well, yeah, but I got like I went and got yellow tights, oh, uh, nice. and then I put a red speedo over them. Nice. And I got three liter. I didn't even know they made three liter Pepsi bottles, and I wrapped them in construction paper to make the um, tanks on my oh, yeah. straps. And then you know I wore like a red goggles. I mean I looked awesome, and I made the whole thing myself. That's so cool. All right, I'm really good at Halloween. Yeah. I've never really, other than being a kid, I never really did anything great. Pekka had been an employee of Kumit, and Kumit extended an invitation to more closely work together despite having been arrested in 1999 for car theft. Buha, though young, made a fortune smuggling cars out of war zones of Croatia, Bosnia, and Slovenia. Through the relationship with Buha, both the car theft ring and their drug dealing enterprises grow. Though they now work for Buha, Spasohivic continues to expand the number of thieves, drug dealers, and forces, and forces that reportedly direct to him. 
Such is their success that in 1996, with the purchase of two estates in Zumin, a suburb of Belgrade, that they become known as the Zumin clan. So they went the Kumet to the Zumin clan. Schiller Street and the Central Road in Zumin became their central headquarters. <laughs> Meeting Buhan, a high-ranking member in the criminal underworld, changed their lives. I'd say Bert changed ours. Dave. What, when, how was the first time you met Bert? We're coming in hot after the second show, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In there. Full, full disclosure, we just took a break and of drinking multiple beers with dinner and second show. And now, second show, multiple beers. We <laughs> fought with each other. The, podca- <laughs> the podcast from here on out is going to have a very different feel yeah. to it. Um, that was a great segue, Steve, by the way. Bert's changed our lives. How do you feel? <laughs> I mean, you know, um, that's what I kind of do. I'd get a weird, very wordy podcast, and I bring it in with stories from people. <laughs> you just, you just want to ask people personal stuff, but you, mm-hmm. uh, you hide it with yeah. mafia talk. Yeah, bore him, <laughs> bore them with criminal underground. Um, yeah, man, I met Bert um, over ten years ago when I was still living in uh, Miami. I was working a day job at the dealership. I was doing comedy on the side. And there was I was lucky enough to be in a, a an area where there was multiple improvs because we had the Miami Fort Lauderdale. Now there's none. No, no, they're they're there. They've they've all closed and moved and reopened oh. and whatever. But there's they're they're back to having three in that area now. There's very different from when I was there. But we had one in Coconut Grove, which is Miami. We had one at the Hard Rock, which is where we'll be at a theater next weekend. Um, but it was a comedy club back then. And then uh, there was the West Palm Improv, which is still there. And then there was also Captain Brian's off the comedy club over in Marco Island, which was about a two hour drive over the uh, Everglades. So I was lucky. There was four A rooms um, that I could get MC or feature work mm-hmm. at uh, and, and go to work all day and then change my shirt, in my office and haul ass to whatever club I was working. So it was funny because you start to with that many clubs, you start kind of working with the same guys over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to know them. They start um, asking for you to open for yeah. them because they know and even you. If, even if you don't open for them, like, you know, it's the same dudes and like your buddy's opening for them. So you go have a beer with them. You yeah. get to know everybody. And for whatever reason, I didn't meet Bert for a while after he was working all those clubs. And then just one weekend randomly, I was uh, uh, booked to middle for him up in West Palm. And I went up and immediately got along with the dude, you mm-hmm. know, and I was I'm the kind of guy still to this day that I don't say no to shit. Like if someone goes, hey, man, I want to go have beers, even if I got to drive two hours back to my house, help my wife like with too. my newborn baby and then go open up the car dealership at 8 a.m. I'm going to go have a beer, man, and get to yep. know people and have some human interaction. So that's a huge thing is business is just making the interludes into conversation and relationships. It's a huge thing in life, man. Yep. Life, I don't care what you're into, man. Life is about people. Comedy, barbecue, <laughs> sports, water polo. Everything is Day about believe. people, bro. Yeah. So, yeah, I just I just really enjoyed spending time with Bert. So I was like, yeah, man, let's go grab some beers. So uh just enjoyed hanging with him all weekend, man. And that first weekend, he uh, would go out on stage. He, you know, because he wasn't famous like he is now. I mean, he was doing well. He was headlining eight rooms. Um, but he'd go out on stage. He had a bucket of Heineken waiting for him on stage. He'd rip his shirt off. They'd play Black Betty. He'd chug a Heineken, like the whole thing. And now he doesn't really drink much on stage until he's through his No, his set, he doesn't drink before it's yeah. really. So back then, he would just like just bottoms up a Heineken to start his set, right? And we'd do like three shows a night. Um, and was he doing numbers then? You know, he was. He was. He was doing all right. Not like now. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, but he was almost selling out clubs. I mean, he was a good headliner. Yeah. He was he was a strong 
because he had the travel channel stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but he would do really well with um, selling booze for the club. That was his philosophy. He's like, if I'm drinking on stage, they're going to join the party. Yeah. The club's going to have a good weekend because they're selling booze, you know. So uh, I, I worked with him that weekend. And then, oh, I remember it, we were in the green room and he goes, uh, man, I, I do this thing where I take my shirt off. And I go, yeah, I saw you, man. The crowd loves it. They go crazy. And then after about 10 minutes, he'd be like, sorry, you have to look at my fat belly and he put his shirt back on or whatever, right? And he's like, but I don't know if I want to keep doing that, man, because I don't want to be known as the guy who takes his shirt off and people think I'm not a good comic. <laughs> and, uh, boy, he went the other way, dude. Yeah. He, I'm so glad he leaned into it because it's just such a part of who he is. And it's not like all the things he was worried about aren't true. Like, you know, he didn't let that stop him from being unique. And it ended up being a very positive thing, you know. I mean, it sets off the party every time. he. But when he walks on a stage and takes off his shirt, that crowd loses its fucking mind. Here's what I noticed the power in it is uh, when I was doing clubs with him, right? So I opened I opened for him here and there over you know the span of years, mostly just because we we made sense together and, and clubs would pair us up, yeah. And uh, we always had fun. And then when I was I moved to L.A. and then years later he was helping me out with my festival and doing a live podcast at the festival. I run. That was only a couple years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, he goes, hey, man, do you want to do some club dates with me? And I go, yeah, because I guess he was getting to the point where he was cool bringing his own openers mm-hmm. and stuff. So I'd go like maybe once a month with him and do a weekend somewhere. Right. So uh, I, I saw all these guys. He'd always do the meet and greet after it. He'd sit there and take a picture with every single fan who wanted to take a picture with him. And they there's all these fat dudes in like Wisconsin and. Washington State, whatever, that would take their shirt off and take a picture with him and immediately post it to social media. And I go, man, Bert, I go, it's going to sound cheesy, but it's kind of sweet. It's like empowering. Like these dudes haven't taken their shirt off at a pool party Mm -hmm. since they were 12 years old. I go, and you make them proud to take their shirt off, take a picture with you, and they cannot wait to post on their Instagram and show all their buddies that they got their shirt, uh, the, got a picture taken with their shirt off at the machine, mm-hmm. and they they're proud of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought it was really cool, man. That you empowered, uh, yeah, empowers the overweight guy to be proud about who they are, and that yeah. you can be just. I mean, because that's the thing. The difference between if I don't, I'm not gonna speak for you, but if me, if I went on stage and took my shirt off, I would have a panic attack. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it would be a fucking nightmare. I've been a dude my whole life has been voyeuristic as far as like wearing speedos. Uh, you were asking me about nicknames earlier. When I did sketch comedy in my early 20s, my nickname was Speedo Dave because I would try to write myself wearing a Speedo into every sketch. <laughs> and and I, it was honestly my first little taste of uh, the entertainment industry fame because I was more fame, famous in that little bubble than I am now because I we live, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had this really popular little sketch comedy group. That's when I got my start in comedy. And I take my girlfriend, who's now my wife, out to lunch. And the waitress would be like, excuse me, are you Speedo Dave? And I'd be like, yes, I am. Just because I would take my, rip my breakaway pants off and have a Speedo in every sketch. Um, That's a little bit of the way he feels when he takes off his shirt. You get a little bit of that nectar that you feel. <laughs> People just lose their mind for that kind of thing. So, yeah. So then, then Bert started doing the theaters and he asked me if I wanted to go do theaters with him. And, you know, then, then you become really close with someone because you're on the tour bus 24-7. Yes. And, um, yeah, man, he's definitely has been a blessing and more than anything, man. And I, I think you feel this way too, Steve, is that it's cool to do shows and it's cool to have work, but the real blessing is watching Bert work because he is a hard worker. He's very business minded. And I've learned so much from the way he goes about his business 
and it's stuff I can actually use because I have a lot of the same sensibilities as Bert. Like it's a lot of stuff where I go, Oh yeah, man, I feel that way. I, I could do that. You know? So, so it's just been really valuable for me and my career and a blessing for my family. Yeah. I mean this, I don't mean this summer, but some people are like, you know, he's just a drunk guy who takes off his shirt and yeah. does it. It's like, you're so yeah, you're- fucking off. This man is the hardest working person. I've ever met all day, every day. If we're doing an activity, it's 10% to do an activity, not 90% so that he can have content to put on his YouTube and to put on his Instagram. But in, but in an authentic way, not yes. in a gross way. No, completely. He, he, he's, he's a dude who figured out, because I think everyone, because comics, we want to be authentic. I think a lot of people were worried about being like uh, gross with marketing, you know? Yeah. Because they had to be edgy and cool and hip. But Bert found a way to make marketing fun and cool and acceptable and game changing yeah. i mean that's the cool the best thing of going with him and as i've been like okay um comedy isn't just go up there and be funny and hopefully something happens that's maybe five percent of it i mean it's it's the main part of it yeah. but there's thousands of people that can do that mm-hmm. you have to have the other stuff too 1995 to 1997 the emergence of the zoo man clan so the Zoo Man guys took over the uh, Zoot Suit Riot. Yeah, they took over the. Um, oh, let's do this real quick. So those guys took over the Kumet, and they now created the Zoo Man game. Mid nineteen ninety six to early nineteen ninety seven, Spaso and Lukovic uh, began dealing drugs purchased by the Albanian syndicates, and they start conducting their first murders. That's pretty big. Good for them. August twenty second, nineteen ninety seven, the pair kidnap and torture a seventeen year old Novak Stenovic. His ransom includes nine pounds of jewelry and 60 German marks. Senevic commits suicide shortly after. I love the nine pounds of just loose jewelry. With comedy and other things, you can sometimes get paid in weird things ways. Dave, what's one of the weirdest things you've been paid to complete a task or comedy? <laughs> um, I don't know if it was an arranged way to get paid, but I'm certainly getting a lot of free barbecue rubs and hot sauces <laughs> and barbecue sauces. Uh, in the mail now like everyone wants to send me that kind of stuff my wife's like stop we don't have room and i'm like it's free shit babe and i want to try it all you know? <laughs> so I, I even get free meat sent to me um yeah so that the, the barbecue rep is paying off in that regard i mean you take it i mean i've been, i was with you when you were eight thousand, and i was five and then followers on instagram uh, on followers yeah. on instagram and now Year and a half later, I'm at 10.2. Very happy for that. And you were almost at 30. And it's yeah, very 29. cool. Woohoo! And you work your ass off, and you should get that. I um, I've uh, what was I paid in? Oh, I. So this is a little different from that question. Okay. But one time I did a show, and uh, it was a random Tuesday night at that off the hook comedy club I would mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was over in Marco Island, Florida, which is a bizarre place to begin with. And uh, I was opening for Jim Brewer, two-man show, a Tuesday night. He sold it out, right? So I do my set, bring Jim up. I'm going to the bathroom. Tuesday. And this lady walks up to me and goes, oh, my God, you're the comedian. Yeah, how are you? You're so great. Thank you so much. And uh, she's like, wouldn't stop talking to me. And I go, oh, uh, you're, you're, we don't want to interrupt the show. Just say, say hi after and we'll talk. Cool. So she immediately comes up to me after Brewer's done, right? And she just corners me. And she was a... Really pretty, but very tall and intimidating black woman. Like, very strong, like Serena Williams type nice. black okay. woman, right? Jewelry, obviously, very well off, mm-hmm. right? She just wouldn't stop, like, talking to me and telling me how her husband's got a bar and we should go to that 
bar. And I work at that club all the time. So I'm like, well, I'd love to know someone who owns a bar in the area. That'd be You're cool. very good at doing that. But I go, you know what? I, I don't, I, I can't tonight. I work tomorrow. I have a baby at home. I have to drive across the Everglades. So I'm not drinking tonight. You know, I'm like, I'm like, thank you. It's nice to meet you. Maybe we can, you know, hang out in the future. I'm like, but no, no, no. Meet my husband. Meet my, and she pulls her husband over and he looked like dog, the bounty hunter. Right? <laughs> He's like, whatever, you know? And so then she's like, yeah, you should come see our, our bar. My husband built it. He's a contractor. It's in uh, the back of our house by our pool. And I go, oh, she's trying to get me to go to her house. Right. And I'm like, oh, I see what's going on here. And then she started making it more and more obvious. Right. So then I kept declining, declining, declining. Her last ditch effort was she took her purse and she shoves it into my gut. I was like, ugh. She goes, can you hold my purse for a minute? I'm like, what the fuck? And she's like, uh, I always carry. Oh, sorry if my purse is heavy. I always carry a couple thousand bucks in cash in case I see something I want. Whoa. And I just dropped the purse and was like. I got to call my wife and tell her I'm not coming home. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. That one would have been hard. I got paid way more than probably even the headliner did that Man. weekend. Just go bang on. These people could have overpowered me, though, if they wanted to murder me or some <laughs> shit, dude. In some fucking Everglades? Yeah, I could, my body would be floating in the swamp, dude. Yeah, that was bizarre, man. That was bizarre. My weirdest one, I've been paid with, I mean, Northern California, I've been paid with a shit ton of marijuana. <laughs> just the more than you could even smoke. Late 1997, Spasohivich and Lukovic are again arrested for auto theft. They become police informants reporting. Saturns. Yeah, yeah, they start putting that old butter knife in the ignition trick. Reporting the movements of Albanian criminals and rebels to the southern Yugoslavia. That was about the year. Yep. <laughs> Dave, have you ever ratted on someone? If so, what about? Oh. Damn. Here, I'll do one first. Yeah, yeah. You think about it. Story. I'm sure I listen have. to me. I used to, when I was oh. selling drugs with those guys that were kind of the sun or the earth and I was the moon, what I could do is I could find out where other drug dealers lived and I could tell them that's where oh, they lived. Oh, you were a prison snitch. And then they would go rob them and then give me some of their drugs. Sixth grade, I was in the magnet program where Flex. I, I had always been like in the suburban uh, schools, like the little bubble of Miami, Florida at that mm -hmm. time. Sixth grade, me and all my buddies wanted to go to this school that we were in the magnet program, and it was in Goulds, Florida, which is a very rough part of Miami, Florida, right? Okay. So one day, I get into a fight with my best friend at the time, and uh, he's walking, happens to be walking down the hallway like 20 feet in front of me, and this um, kid comes out of the bathroom and, and knocks into him, and they have an altercation. Well, I see this as an opportunity to make it up to my friend and be a good be a good friend. Or whatever. Mm -hmm. I go up there and I go, hey, man, watch out where you're going. I go, I don't know why you're yelling at him. You're the one who ran it. And I was being a tough guy. Right? Yeah, trying to help him out. Oh, this guy looks at me and he's like, all right, bro. So now, like two days later, I made up my friend with my friend. I was wandering under the bridge. We go to leave our science class. And I look outside and I see that guy and like six other dudes uh -oh. waiting for us. Uh oh. And I go, oh, man. I go, what's I, I grab my buddy and I pull him back in the room. I go, dude, we can't go out there. That guy wants to kick our butt. And he's like, why? I'm like, what do you mean, why? Because I was standing up for you, bro. This is your <laughs> it's not your fault. So we sneak out the back door and we're trying to like weave our way through the hallway. And then they see us like, there's those gringos. And they come running after us. We go running. And our next classroom was in the corner of the school. And we get there and we're like, ah, suckers. And we go to open the door and it was locked. And there was a sign on the door that said, meet oh. in the library today. We were like, oh, we we're fucked. 
So these guys circle us and they all start speaking Spanish. And now I'm trying to be like, hey, guys, everything's cool, right? And then they start talking in Spanish. like, And I look over here and I look over here and I look over here. And when I go back here, I get sucker punched right in my temple. And then my initial reaction was to fight back, even though I was going to get demolished. I start chasing them down the hallway as they're running away. And I was like uh, lightheaded. So I ran straight into a wall. So, So I jacked my face up myself. I go home. My mom sees my face, goes, what happened? And I got to tell her. And my mom was not going to stand for that. So she goes down to the school the next day oh. and says, uh, has a closed door meeting with the principal. And then he comes out and gets a police officer and goes, you're going to go into the cafeteria in front of the whole student body and uh, point these guys out. And I'm like, you guys. You, gonna- you had to do that in front of everybody? Yeah, I had to snitch them out. Dude. Oh, I go, you guys man. are going to make this way worse. Wow. <laughs> All right. So I did. I go in there and I, I pointed the kid out and they pull the kid into the office. And uh, the principal, who's usually a very mild mannered man, was like, he says this to the kid. He's like, boy, I know that you are less than one strike away to go into juvie hall for a long time. He's like, I'm not going to send you there right now, even though I could. He goes, instead, I'm going to make sure that nobody ever touches this boy at my school again. If anybody messes with this boy. I'm going to make sure that it appears to be your fault every single time <laughs> until you get locked away forever, right? Oh, my God. So now this kid was my best friend. He was like my guardian angel, you know? So, <laughs> so man, I couldn't turn a corner in that school without him being like, Williamson, you cool? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Jose. Like, you know? Like, we became friends. He was my buddy. <laughs> it worked out for you at the I end. Was, and I told my mom. My mom's like, don't you feel better? I'm like, I think you signed me up for a gang. Like... <laughs> Snitches gets friends. I'm still in, in that story. gang to this day, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. March 1998, a war breaks out between Albania rebels in Kosovo and the Serb government of Yugoslavia. With Biha's connections, their power and influence grow. In 1996, they conduct their first murders in battalion of Biha. And in 1997, they conduct their first kidnap and ransom. With their numbers growing, a hardcore group forms around Spasohevich, and they now nick him, nickname him the Godfather. By Lukovic and the other fathers, they all start calling him. So the main guy is now a Serbian godfather. Very cool. Through many of their followers are only uh, petty criminals like themselves. Their ranks are bolstered by an increasing number of Serbian veterans of the Yugoslavian War. This is what we were talking about earlier. They're lear- they're getting rid of these fucking underlings that are stealing Saturns with butter knives. Yeah. Into getting veterans in fucking war criminals. Chief among these was Svetko Kanilic, a veteran of the paramilitary commando unit found funded by the Yugoslavian government to fight the Croatians. Units such as this, which adopted the Red Beret of the elite Russian internal, sec- internal security soldiers and were funded by Yugoslavia and Russia, were involved in attempts to drive the crowds out of Ser- uh, Serbian borders regions through mass murder and ethnic cleansing. Kalinic uh, became known as the Beast and as Kalinic the White. He escaped Croatia in 1995 when the new government um, there attempted to prosecute Serbian militiamen for war crimes. In Belgrade, he rapidly became the most notorious Spasohevic enforcer, enforcer killing at least 20 people and allegedly torturing many more with his gray Audi, becoming known citywide as the Very Audi cool. of death Whoa. by Belgrade newspapers. And the man still drove that shit. Dang. Audi of death, top five coolest cars ever. Dave, what's the favorite car you ever rode? Uh, I drove an Audi TT for a little while. Oh, that's a fun one. 
Uh, yeah. When I was coaching water polo right after college, was my parents were in the car business, so I would just drive cars off the lot, man. Oh, wow. I was very spoiled. Very spoiled with cars. Um, I have so many answers to this question. My first car ever was a. It was off the used car lot, but it only had a few thousand miles on it. It was a '96 Ford Explorer. Uh, Eddie Bauer. Eddie Bauer. Oh, blue. It was white oh, with that's what I was teal. Uh, gray interior and teal the pinstripes, uh, pinstripes yeah, and clean. teal uh, trim and inside the car too. It was that's clean. awesome. And I put an aftermarket visor on it. Mm-hmm. I really I put speakers in the back. Yeah, yeah. that car was awesome. I loved it. Um, and then I had a uh, <laughs> I had a red uh, convertible Mustang for a little while, nice. which was hilarious. Uh, going going to school in Miami, and I always would wear my hat backwards so my hair wouldn't blow. And then I had a sun <laughs> sunburn that was a little half half circle on my forehead That's constantly hilarious. from that man. And uh, dude, I, I drive a Jeep Wrangler now, and honestly, like it's not even like a very f- uh, flashy one. But just driving a Jeep Wrangler makes me so happy, man. It just it just puts you in a good mood when you got to go somewhere, you know. Um, but I've driven a few Wranglers over the years here. Anytime a Jeep Wrangler came to the used car lot, I'd ask if I could drive it for a month before they sold it. And um, the coolest car I ever had, probably the most spoiled I've ever been, was when uh, Cadillac Escalades were still yep. they were still kind of new at the time. Yep. Jason Taylor of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, traded man. his in, so he had like a first generation F- Escalade, and then he traded it in, and uh, it was on these car lot. So I took it up to college with me for a year, and uh, the OnStar was still hooked up, and it still had his name attached to it. Mm-hmm. So every time I'd get drunk, I'd I'd be like, hey, check this out, and we'd call OnStar, and I'd be like, where did the do-? I'd be like, this is Jason Taylor, <laughs> where did the Dolphins play this week? And they'd be like, uh, the Dolphins are away in Charlotte. I'm like. How far away is that? And they'd be like, it's four hours from where you are now. I'd be like, oh, shit, I got to get there. Could you give me directions? <laughs> I think I thought it was so funny. Um, Just the world before the Internet. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I love that Escalade, man, because it was it wasn't a brand new Escalade. So I didn't feel like I was like uh, over the top, mm-hmm. you know, but it was really nice. So it was nice to have a cool car at that point in my life, my junior year of college, you know. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty hard to beat. My favorite cars, I got two. Uh, my first car was a '68 Chevy truck. Um, hard S10. to beat. Hard to beat those classics. Yeah, man. we worked on that. Me and my dad got that's painted, cool, changed it up. I wish I never sold it. And then my current mm. car right now, I recently bought it during the pandemic. Mm. As uh, it's a little old, old five Lexus LS430, but it's only got forty thousand miles on it, so it was kept in an old man's garage. Perfect, and it's in perfect condition. Um, it's just one of my those favorites. are the steals to find it yeah uh, my grandma had a, a cadillac that she put like two thousand miles on for mm-hmm. like eight years yeah and so when she wasn't when she was got too old to drive i bought it from her and now i mean i love that car it was it was spotless yeah and it, it, i i i I love that car. I just love like kind of keeping weird old shit kind of flossy. But let's get back to it. Though the zoo man can escalate to murder and kidnapping, Spasohevich and Lukovic were arrested again in 1987 for car theft, with the police encouraging them to become police informants, to which they agreed. Rather than have them turn on their criminal colleagues, the police introduced them to the Yugoslavian intelligence officials who utilized their personal and drug connections Albania and Kosovo to report on the activities of ethnic Albanians opposed to the Serb-dominated government, including Albanian insurgents operating in their new home region of Medvidva. 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 As police informants, their power and influence grew, especially as the Albanian insurgency escalated into the Kosovo War. And what's interesting about this, man, is uh, 
just like you know banks and businesses if mm-hmm. you get too big to fail the government's not going to prosecute you they're just going to start working with you. all right guys that's the first episode of this two-part about the zoo man clan serbia's most dangerous mafia that was my guy davy dubs dave williamson my tour brother uh you know also he was one of the guys who helped me get on this tour um i did this uh festival a couple years ago with a couple buddies my name called the southland comedy festival one of the most badass things ever done Hundred, oh, almost 100 comics were in it, 30 shows all sold out, I linked up with Dave, and hung out, and then somehow he threw my name to Bert, and now I'm here and changed my life, um, other than that guys, this is part one, so make sure you check out next week, and then after that, we're doing the Hawaiian Gardens, apparently, we're finally going into the comedy store, we're finally doing it with uh, Officer Gannon, LAPD, who specializes in La M.A., the Mexican Mafia, this is by far the most dangerous episode of a podcast I have done, or I would argue any comedian has ever done, because this gang is uh, yeah, about six miles away from my house. Though doing that Armenian one wasn't that safe, because I live in, guessed it, Little Armenia. So, whatever, it's all fine. Uh, this podcast was pretty fun. Hope you guys had a good time. Um, I, I think it's getting, the, it's getting the groove, you know? I think I think the real podcast, where it needs to go, is almost like the show hot ones you know where where they eat a hot wing it breaks their down their senses and you ask them a personal question i think that's just what we're gonna do here right now i am in my robe in the hotel hard rock hotel in hollywood florida i gotta say this apartment's pretty this little uh, hotel's pretty nice but other than that love you guys keep listening keep growing it share with your friend if you think this thing's getting good and you're enjoying it or keep it to yourself and be all a little secret peace guys You mean the world. Bye.